Hey there, Fellowship Greenville. Good morning, my name is Jim, and I'm one of the pastors here. Thank you so much, greetings for me. Merry Christmas, so glad that you're here, so, so glad that you're here to worship King Jesus with us today. Hello, Auditorium 2 across the way. You guys are lovely per usual. Uh, extra special, thanks for being here. If you are visiting with us today, we're so, so glad to have you. You can stop by our Welcome Center in the Commons area, which is over here near Auditorium 1. Uh, and, and if you have any questions about life here at Fellowship. And probably the, the quickest way to get into the swing of things here is to go to a starting point class, which actually meets during this hour, during second service, and because of holiday stuff. The next one of those is January 21st, and so keep an eye out for that. And members and regulars, if you need specifics or details about anything upcoming, don't forget to stop by and see your friends at Next Steps in the Commons. They told me today that they cannot wait to see you and help you out with whatever. Also, Auditorium 2, in the back corner over yonder, over your probably left shoulder, we have a table that uh, we have manned that anybody can answer any questions you have after service. Now, as many of you know, we uh, today get to continue our Advent series called Word Made Flesh. And in these several weeks leading up to Christmas, we are exploring the most glorious of truths that somehow, and in some mind-bending way, God has come to us in the person of Jesus. <clears throat> he is fully God, and at the very same time, he is fully man. And that's why we set aside time to uniquely celebrate during this season every year. Because we believe that the arrival of Jesus, the advent of Jesus, is not just like, oh, he's a good man, or he's a good teacher, or he's a good idea. We believe that Jesus is God himself come to dwell among us. And in his incarnation, we have divine and decisive action to rescue humanity and to make kingdom come. And tucked into this truth of Christmas, we actually discover an entire way to live, to enter other people's world in order to love them and serve them and care for them, just like Jesus did for us. And today, we get to keep thinking about these kinds of things in Hebrews chapter two. If you wanna go ahead and get there, flip there, scroll there in your Bible, that would be good, great, wonderful. Thank you so much. Hebrews chapter two. It's in the back. If you get to Revelation, take a left. Hebrews chapter two. We will get there in a few minutes, I promise. Hebrews 2. Now, as you're finding your way there, uh, we get to play a little game this morning. I think it's fun. You better think it's fun. Don't overthink it. It's the only rule of the game. Just whatever first comes to mind. Here it is. I need you to think right now, here we go, of your three biggest fears. Your three biggest fears. They can be existential and meaningful and deep in father wombs, or they can be spiders. So you have five seconds of silence to think of your three biggest fears. Go ahead and do it. All right, good. You got them. And if not, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you some uh, like prods to think of your three biggest fears. <clears throat> now, in researching about fear this past week, I found what I think are some of the most interesting fears that I can't not share with you and if these are the prods to get you to your biggest fear, then I'd love to have a conversation with you later on this week. So here are a few standouts. <clears throat> the only judge in this was just me, so deal with it. Here it is. Uh, arithmophobia is fear of numbers. Fear of numbers. Paganophobia is fear of beards. Fear of beards. Chris Stapleton joke. Uh, isotropophobia is fear of mirrors, which is very strange to me. Uh, ablutophobia is fear of bathing, known 
to um, historically plague middle school boys. <laughs> um, that is funny. And if this, is, if this fear, if this next fear is a thing, I really do want to talk to you. Omphalophobia is fear of belly buttons. And I mean, I have so many questions around that. <clears throat> now, the number one coolest fear that I found this past week, by name alone, by name alone is the following. Please look at the screens pretty please. Thank you. I'm going to throw it up on the screens in three, two, one. In three, two, one. There it is. Okay, now, now, <clears throat> don't get carried away. I've been practicing all week. So here we go. Hippopotamonstrosis quipadaliophobia. Hey, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Now, because I practice so hard, I'm doing it again. Here we go. I'm going to try not to look. Uh, Hippopotamonstrosis quip, uh, oh, poop. Quipadaliophobia. <clears throat> now, wait, it gets better though. You ready? This is legitimate. You can Google it later, later, even though you won't remember how to spell it. It literally means fear of long words, <laughs> right? <laughs> and uh, you're so welcome. Merry Christmas. Let's pack up and go home. That was wonderful. <clears throat> now, those are the fun ones. They're really fun, and there's a bunch of interesting ones. Um, and now I hope that, that now you have your three, so think of your three, and now we're gonna do, we're gonna do our, our game a little bit more, and I just need a show of hands uh, and maybe one of your top three will be included on this. So please play along. Don't be too cool for this. You too, auditorium too, because you gotta have solidarity with your uh, amigos around you right there. So here it is. <clears throat> How many of you are more afraid of spiders than snakes? More afraid of spiders than snakes. Okay, now how many of you are more afraid of snakes than spiders? Oh good, that's biblical. Okay, look, <clears throat> next one. <laughs> next one here. How many of you are more afraid, more afraid of heights than public speaking? Heights over public speaking. Now, how many of you are more afraid of public speaking over heights? <laughs> okay, nice, nice. All right, last one. <clears throat> this is a quick, quick game, but this is, this is my favorite one right here. How, how many of you are more afraid of flying, airplane, <clears throat> than thunderstorms? More afraid of flying. You're just like, car, please, thanks. Okay, good. Now, how many of you are more afraid of thunderstorms and flying? Now, I also have secretly uh, lured you into my web of you're all terrified to fly in a thunderstorm now, so Merry Christmas for that, too. <clears throat> Now, um, <clears throat> there are dozens more like this, dude. The, the classic claustrophobia, fear of enclosed spaces. Uh, I know adults that are still afraid of the dark, crowds and germs <clears throat> and diseases. Like there, you can go find a bunch online if you Google top fears. It's, it's an interesting project. Um, but there are likewise other fears that feel a little bit more abstract <clears throat> and dominating and daunting. And think about, think about these. Um, have you ever had to wrestle with fear of failure? I'm just not gonna add up. Dude, it's not gonna happen for my life. It's not gonna, I'm gonna blow it. Or maybe fear of a spouse leaving you or fear of losing a loved one. And we were all teenagers, we did, we did our stint, right? Fear of not being accepted, and that sticks around for a lot of us. Fear of succeeding at the wrong thing, that's a version of fear of failure, right? Or, or maybe your, your fears have like a spiritual bent towards them and you're, you're scared that you're gonna miss God's will. And I know that we have all been kind of there. I've been there. And those are really tough spaces to live in. <clears throat> now, something like the, the fun fears, the, the weird playful ones, the belly button, whatever, all that is circumstantial. <clears throat> but for a lot of people, they live daily under fear that is substantial, like a constant dark cloud overhead that could break 
at any moment. And regularly, people like this, they can't even make decisions without being uh, terrified of, of possible tragic outcomes. And maybe this is you. Maybe you overthink something you overthink, and then you go, oh no, I'm overthinking. You try to throw it in reverse, and then you end up overthinking in a different direction altogether. And like whatever your fear is, it has the power to be like a small rudder on the ship of your life that can lead you into troubled waters. Like it seems so small and helpless, it's literally just a thought, fear is. And yet it has a mysterious power to govern and control us, perhaps even to the point of shipwreck, right? Now, my uh, degrees are not in psychology, and I'm not claiming this as definitive uh, psychological truth, but theologically and biblically this makes sense to me, and that is that the fear of death is actually the thing that lurks behind every other fear. Now think about it. All these other fears, what they do is they trap you into believing, hey, they trap you into believing that things are out of control and when things are out of control and everything feels, everything feels unknown, you're like trying to grab a hold of purpose and hope and there's nothing. And you're trying to be like, there's not even real substantial life here. And then you start to see that something like fear of failure is actually propped up by fear of death or flying or thunderstorms or heights or, or whatever. These things, we know that these things are bigger than us and that they can put an end to us, thus Death. It's as though fear of death is the seed that blossoms into different kinds of fear trees depending on where it's planted. Fear of death is like this ultimate fear that wears dozens of fear masks, but at the end of the day, when he takes off whatever mask, their death stands with no facade. Now my wife Sarah, her aunt Denise went to be with Jesus about 10 years ago. She was the absolute sweetest of souls. Uh, She passed away actually on Easter Sunday morning, 2014. And she was a PhD. She was a phenomenal writer. And when she learned of the cancer diagnosis that ended up taking her life, she was actually like 80% done with a memoir on fear and death. I think I've mentioned it before. It's called A Tour of Bones, if you want to look it up, by Aunt Denise Inge. Excellent book. But in it, she writes the following. There is a final fear, quiet as cat's feet, which sits in the heart of everyone. We think that we have avoided it when we fill our days with ceaseless activity, but it is not conquered. It has infinite patience. It has inevitability on its side. This fear, as heavy as a tomb, is the fear that we all have a deep and great sense of. Well, Jim, at this point, I'd have to say it's the worst Christmas message I have ever heard, hands down. (laughs) You might be like, bro, Christmas, why are we talking about fear? What's the move? Well, when I read the Christmas story, the angels say, hey, do not fear. I bring you good news of great joy for all the people. Like, and when you read that in Luke, you get the feeling that those words were meant for more than just a few shepherds. They're meant for us too. Because there is something in the advent of Jesus, there's something in the beauty of his incarnation that is attending to the problems of fear and death and fear of death. There's something there. And so we need to pay really, really close attention to it. And this gives us our question for today. How does 
the arrival of Jesus deal with the problems of fear and death? How does the arrival of Jesus, the advent of Jesus, deal with the problems of fear and death? And it doesn't matter what your fear is, like your top three, whatever. <clears throat> and it doesn't matter if you do what Aunt Denise said and fill your days with ceaseless activity, pretending not to listen to fear, even though it's like whispering underneath the surface. What matters is that fear and death have inevitability on their side and we can't seem to shake them on our own. But the good news of Advent is that God has done something in Jesus and there's freedom there and that's why we're asking, how does the arrival of Jesus deal with these problems of fear and death? And today we're calling on Hebrews chapter two, verses 14 to 15 to help us think about this question. That is our passage for this morning. Hebrews two, verses 14 and 15. And after I read, let's confess our gratitude together for God's word. I'll do my line. This is the word of God for the people of God. And then comes your line. Thanks be to God. Here we go. Hebrews 2, 14. Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. This is the word of God for the people of God. God. Amen. Now, there is a lot slammed into this winding single sentence in Greek, the church that... is receiving this letter that we call Hebrews, Uh, they were not rightly believing and appropriating uh, the power and beauty of what Jesus had done for them. And the writer of Hebrews is thus laboring to remind them of the glory of the gospel. And that's why we have these words. And with these couple verses, we actually have a further explanation of fear and death and how these things relate. But we also have the action of Jesus in his incarnation and death that has somehow nullified fear and death. So here's our game plan uh, to answer our question. We're gonna talk a little bit more about how fear works, and then we're gonna talk about Jesus's work to undo fear and death, and then we're gonna talk about what our response should be. So three things, how fear works. Secondly, how Jesus has, uh, Jesus's work to undo fear. And third, how should we respond to fear undone by Jesus? So here we go, first. We all know that Christmas means God has come to rescue us. God as a human, the word made flesh, that he came to die, right? That's verse 14, and we're gonna come back to that. But verse 15 is the verse about how fear works, and it uses three words to describe our predicament that Jesus has come to save us from. And we've already talked about two of the words in verse 15, fear and death, but look at the verse again. Verse 15, look, he came to Deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That last word is key here. And here's here's how I understand the relationship between fear, death, and slavery. If I fear anything right now in the present, like whatever your top three fear is, just pick one of them. If you fear anything right now in the present, it could be numbers or snakes or diseases or failure or not being accepted or fear of getting caught, whatever the thing is. If I fear anything right now, That thing is controlled by the ultimate fear on the horizon. Or to 
put it differently, the fear of present possibility is controlled by the fear of future certainty where none of us can escape death. But there's one more idea here, and that's the slavery idea. So watch this. The space in between present fear and future fear, that space is defined by the last word in verse 15, slavery. That's what I think is going on behind verse 15. Now, and some of you, if you're trying to engage critically here, you might want to push back a little bit and be like, well, the term, Jim, in verse 15 is fear of death. <clears throat> and I, I see that, but we still have to make sense of the word lifelong, the second to last word, that modifies the word slavery. So imagine it like this. Slavery in this verse is a long and patient chain that shackles my present fear to my future fear of death. And this is not something that we can just <clears throat> wiggle free from on our own. Look at the verb in the verse, verse 15. Look, we need to be delivered from this. We need deliverance from this fear and slavery and death. We need to be liberated, if you will. Now, um, I, I'm not gonna do a show of hands on this one, and I don't know how many of you uh, like roller coasters um, and if you don't like roller coasters, the, the, the people-pleasing, <laughs> like, empathy part of me wants to be like, yo, that's all right, that's okay, no worries. But then there's another part of me where I just want you to like everything that I like, and I want to get in the car with you right now and drive up 85 to Charlotte, and if it wasn't raining, we would go to Carowinds, and we would ride, I would force you to ride, graciously, of course, the Fury 325 with me. Now, Thank you so much for asking about the Fury 325. It's almost a mile and a half long roller coaster that goes back and forth over the North Carolina and South Carolina border. <laughs> it is the fifth tallest roller coaster in the world and the eighth fastest roller coaster in the world. And I kid you not, it's opening uh, a mega drop is 325 feet at an 81 degree angle. And when you get to the bottom of it, after you wet your pants, it gives you no time. It gives you no time to catch your breath because then you barrel roll into this little spinny thing and then it sends you into this big S-curve thing and you get up to 95 miles an hour. Now, I thank God for many things in this world, tangible physical things. One, roller coasters. Two, that he gave me a wife that will ride the Fury 325 with me. And this past spring, you guys are like, really? Okay, good. This past spring, my, my daughter had a little uh, choir concert up there, <clears throat> so we got to go up, and Sarah and I got to ride the Fury 325, and it was beyond delightful, quite a joy. Now, <clears throat> here's the honest truth. I completely understand people <clears throat> with fear of roller coasters, especially, uh, here's a fun story about the Fury. Uh, it cracked in July. Uh, they fixed it, but good luck, right? <laughs> so, especially fear of roller coasters, i.e. the Fury 325, it's a totally rational fear in my book. I completely get it. I totally get it. But what's really strange to me is I've been up there with people that are really, really tough and strong and confident people, people that if you looked at their life, you'd be like, ha, they are scared of literally nothing. And I have stood in the shadow of a roller coaster with these wonderful, beautiful people that I love. And they were frozen to the point of silence except for the word no, right? <laughs> and in that moment, check it, in that moment, fear did something to them. Like it completely, for the tiniest window, it completely changed who they were. It just stripped them of their whole personality. Because this is my point. That is exactly what fear does. It paralyzes. Listen, this is what fear does. It makes 
possibilities and contingencies put question marks out beside things like comfort and control, forcing us to inactivity or wrong activity. Here's my point. My point is that the paralyzing power of fear, that is the exact same thing as the slavery that Hebrews 2.15 is talking about. Current fears enslave us because they connect us to the fear of death, which is decisive inactivity. And look at the line. Look at the actual line in the text. Look at what Hebrews says. Look, it says we are subject to lifelong slavery. Now, think about this. If your primary fear is that your kids are going to grow up and leave your house and turn into a person that is wildly different from how you thought you raised them. And if you fixate on that and you constantly consider different worst case scenarios from that premise, are you ready? Guess what it's gonna do? It's gonna immobilize you and freeze you in your parental tracks. And then you won't be able to genuinely love the person that is your son or daughter. You won't be able to love your kid for who they are today right now. They are a gift from God that still lives with you and they still respect you even if you don't feel it in some way. But if you're always paralyzed in the shadow of their future of all the drops and twists and turns that may come in their life, if that's you, you will always be worried about fine-tuning some distant version of them. Usually, also, because you want them to be just like you, you'll be so worried about that and not be able to be present. And that tension between what is now and what is to come, that tension is captivity. It is lifelong slavery. You see how that works? Or maybe you have a more spiritual fear and your fear is that God won't provide for you. Like you've thought, like you've been a Christian for a while, you've thought, God's just calling me to be like Job when it comes to loved ones and material possessions. And you're scared he's not gonna provide you with a husband or a wife. You're scared he's not gonna provide you with that new job that you really, really need. You're scared he won't give you clarity about the thing you've been praying for for a long time. You're scared because the divorce feels absolutely unavoidable after everything that's happened. Maybe you're scared because you've never felt his presence like some people talk about, or you're scared that you won't be able to make ends meet, and you're scared that nobody will love you for who you think that you are. You're scared that God won't provide healing for her, and you feel a little trapped. And here's the deal, biblically and categorically, You go, Jim, I know, yes, I know that he's good. But you just want him to prove it in a way that addresses your most immediate and your deepest felt need the fastest. That's what you want. And as your friend and pastor, I'm gonna go ahead and tell you, that's not necessarily wrong. But if the driving force in your relationship with God is what material, relational, or circumstantial blessings you think he owes you, friends, even that can paralyze you. And that's really scary. I've heard some people say, I've heard some people say that fear is a liar. And I don't disagree with that. I'm not, I'm not, I get where they're coming from, but I think a better way to say that is that fear just takes a question mark and puts it out beside what we know is true. Yo, this is the first move, this is the first sin, this is Satan, this is the first thing. 
First sin, first temptation. He says, did God really say? Question mark. And you know what that does? It freezes us in our tracks. So when we look at verse 15, the tallest and final peak in the mountain range of fears is death itself, right? Also death in the Bible is often spoken of in terms of exile or separation, that we deserve separation from God because of our sin. And this impersonal, unholy trinity of fear and slavery and death, these things are a result of the sinfulness of the world. And the final result will be separation from God unless God steps in to do something. Now, here's what I need you to see. That, all that, that's how fear works. It freezes us and paralyzes us into slavery. And this is where we get to go back to verse 14, and now we get to think about Jesus' work to undo the fear stuff. So look at it again, verse 14. Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same. Meaning, ready? The incarnation of Jesus some 2,000 years ago was him taking to himself flesh and blood. He became fully and totally human. He didn't like appear as human or masquerade or manifest randomly as a human for just a little bit. He actually came to earth as a helpless baby. One of my favorite ways to frame all this is that we live in a world where anything is possible. You can do whatever, be whatever, go wherever. Any possibility can be a reality if you just have enough time and money, right? That's the world we live in. And we're allergic to limitation because we think limitation means weakness. But if I'm looking at Hebrews 2, you know what it's teaching? It's teaching me that Jesus clothed himself in limitation. He partook of flesh and blood means that he submitted himself to the restraints of being human where you can't do whatever, be whatever, go wherever. And this really is the the strange majesty of Christmas, the limitless God in a manger. But he didn't do all of it for fun. The rest of the verse gives us the purpose of the advent, the arrival, the incarnation. Look, he partook of flesh and blood, and it's it's a purpose clause, so that, this is the reason, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And this is Jesus' work to undo fear, slavery, and death. And sorry to cheat about this, actually not sorry at all, but this verse means that you can't talk about Christmas without talking about Easter. He took on flesh and blood in order to die, and in doing so, he destroyed the devil and his schemes. Now, there's a very important word right here we need to press in on, zoom in and look at. It's the word destroy in verse 14. Now, I don't know what you think about when you hear destroy. The word does not mean to obliterate or or demolish or abolish. That's not the word. In English, I feel like destroy can have the connotation of putting an end to something, and that is not the word picture here. This is a very particular word about depriving something of its power or making something ineffective. If you have the New American Standard Bible, it translates this term render powerless, which I think is a really helpful way to say it. Or a fun way to say it is it's a shark with no teeth, a snake with no venom, and a wasp with no stinger. And Paul knows this, oh death, where is your sting, right? So the enemy is standing there, he's standing there right in front of you, but his weapon is broken. 
And let me let, let you in on what this means. <clears throat> fear as a possibility still exists. It still does. Ready? <clears throat> me and you, we're still going to die. Sorry to break that to you. But here's the point. The ultimate separation, the ultimate like death separation from God, that is no longer a possibility for all who belong to Jesus. The weapon is still there, but it's jammed. It doesn't work. It's ineffective. Oh, death, where is your sting? Here's the best thing. <laughs> this is the best. It's not that Jesus took the devil's weapon and went, ha ha, you can't use it anymore. That's not, that's not the picture of what's going on here. He took the devil's main weapon and turned it back on the devil himself in order to defeat him. The devil is the one luring people into his web of the unholy trinity, fear, slavery, and death. And God knows the linchpin of that web is death. And so the holy trinity of Father, Son, and Spirit sent Jesus the Son into the world to take death into himself and untangle us from the web and set us free to lifelong freedom and not lifelong slavery. That is the picture in Hebrews 2. And as I was studying this past week, <clears throat> I became fully convinced that C.S. Lewis had been reading Hebrews 2 before he wrote the last little bit of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. <clears throat> After Aslan was bound and dead on the stone table and he came back to life, this is what he <clears throat> told to Lucy and Susan. This is what he said to Lucy and Susan. He said, though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still, which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time, but if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. My boy Clive gets it, right? <clears throat> That's so beautiful. And guess what this means for Hebrews and for us? It means that the, the fear, fear that, that is the fabric of that unholy trinity. Jesus has done something to it. Jesus' great work can take that fear and turn it inside out into confidence and assurance and security in him. How do I know this? Because Hebrews keeps going. Let us approach the throne of grace with confidence, knowing we will receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need, Hebrews 4. Because of Jesus' advent and life and death, those other things don't have to hold sway in our life anymore. They no longer have permission to be defining realities to us. They don't get that right anymore. Jesus has taken the stinger out, and this walks us right up to the answer to our question. Here it is. The incarnation of Jesus <clears throat> turns fear into confidence, slavery into freedom, and death into life. Because Jesus came. He came as limitation. And he came to mess with fear, slavery, and death. And because of it, he can turn fear into confidence, slavery into freedom, and death into life. This is the work of Jesus. Think about it. Because he has taken the devil's main weapon and turned it back on the devil himself, he reverses the power of all these things. Now they work backwards, like Lewis says. 
And when we trust him instead of ourselves, when we rely on him and believe him instead of ourselves, we can experience confidence, not fear, freedom, not slavery, life, and not death. And I don't know about you, we live in a crazy world. My heart is crazy too. To me, that is such freedom. That is a relief that Jesus has done that. And this is the center of our theology as followers of Jesus, that in his advent, death, and resurrection, Jesus has reversed the curse of all these things. But this is also not just the center of our theology, it's deeply practical for how you live every single day when you stand face to face with a fear this week. Like, go ahead, go get your, your three fears again. What are they gonna look like this week for you? Like, you're gonna be worried that your boss is gonna respond to you negatively. Or you're gonna be afraid that your husband will be mad if you bring it up again. Or you have this huge test on Thursday that you're terrified about. When those fears enter the picture, because of Jesus, now you can take a deep breath and know that he has definitively handled the bigger fear of death that lies behind the one you're facing. And then, rather than being paralyzed to inactivity, you can act in humility and confidence knowing that the result of that situation doesn't define your life. Do you get that? When the fear comes knocking, I'm not saying it's not gonna be weird or hard or tough. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that you can have confidence because of Jesus to go, hey, fear, you don't get to define me, rule over me, or tell me what's up. You don't get that right. Jesus alone gets that right. And if you belong to him, who has reversed the curse of fear, slavery, and death through his own death, then how you respond to everyday fears, now, those things don't have to rule you because Jesus rules you. Rather, the thing that is most true about you is that you belong to Jesus, you belong to Jesus' family, and nothing, I don't care what your fear is, nothing can take that away from you. And now, now, it's lifelong freedom and not lifelong slavery. And so, we looked at how fear works. We looked at Jesus' work to undo fear, and we're already hinting at it, but let's scratch a little bit more at what our response should be to these things. So do this. Let's go back for a moment, because I do think a lot of us have been here. Let's go back to a moment uh, to the fear that God won't provide, whether it's a future spouse or future clarity uh, about what you're praying about, or financial provision to make ends meet, or you're, you're afraid that God won't heal her. Remember, Jesus' work has rendered these things powerless, so now we can gospelize these fears. They still exist, but they can't reign over us, and now we can think about about them like this. In the gospel, Jesus is our perfect bridegroom. He is the clarity of God's love for us. He is, like Hebrews later says, our better and lasting possession that can't be taken away, and he gives eternal healing for our sickly hearts. Again, fears aren't gone, but they are emptied of their power. And some of you still might be like, Jim, this makes sense, but my thing is an exception. My thing is a little bit different. And brother, sister, if you're going through that right now, I'm so sorry of the weight that you feel. And I'm not saying the road is easy to walk. It can be the hardest of roads at points. What I'm saying though is Jesus walked that same road in some sort of unsinful, rational fear of death way, he prayed in the garden before the cross, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. He felt the weight of it. The thing that you feel now, he felt it. But guess what he did? He trusted his Father. 
And for us, the invitation now to trust Jesus, especially since he's felt the pressure of it, the invitation to trust him is now the way into freedom and life, no matter what fear is staring us down. So yes, there are practical responses. I 100% believe that. (laughs) I think if you're having a hard go of it, you need to go somewhere by yourself and say out loud, fear, this fear, the specific fear, does not get the final word because of Jesus. And self, this fear is not as big as it feels, no matter what I'm thinking. Say that out loud to yourself. You should, there's a practical things. You should go tell a godly friend or a community group member, say, hey, you know what? I'm really scared about this. It's freaking me out a little bit. I need you to pray for me out loud right now. Don't say you'll pray and then go pray. I need to hear it right now. Do that right now. And you need to say out loud to Jesus, Jesus, I know what's true, but it still feels unbearably heavy. And I know you've been there and you understand. Please help me to trust you more. They're practical, simple responses. But I think most of all, these verses in Hebrews 2 are a wide open door to faith and assurance in Jesus. To confidence, to a kind of contrite confidence in him. I know some of you know about this book, and if you need a great daily devotional, you can ask somebody to get you this for Christmas. We still got time, or you can go buy this for a friend. It's Paul David Tripp's book, New Morning Mercies. And in the December 15th reading, which is actually coming up this week, listen to how he talks about our response of faith and assurance, the, the contrite confidence thing. Listen, it's a longer section, so just give it a second, but it's really, really rich. Paul Tripp writes, <clears throat> The fact of the matter is that we live in a world where things break, die, get corrupted, or otherwise fade away. And here, surety is only found vertically. If you are God's child, your standing before him is sure, and because it is, you have surety in life right here, right now, in death, and in eternity. You have the surety of knowing that you don't have to hide or play act because every one of your sins and weaknesses has been covered by Jesus' blood. You don't have to fear that you will not have what it takes because your Savior gives you all that you need to do what he's called you to do. You don't have to worry that you will be left alone because your Savior has made you the place where he dwells. You don't have to live with regret because all your past sins have been forgiven by his grace. You don't have to search for identity, meaning, or purpose because he has made you his child and called you to his purpose. You don't have to worry about the future because all the mysteries of what is to come are held in his sovereign hands. You don't have to fear trouble, difficulty, or suffering because your savior uses all of these things for your good and his glory. And you don't have to fear being punished because your savior took the punishment for you. Because of the grace of Jesus, you stand before God sure and secure. And because you do, your life is blessed with every kind of assurance and security you could ever want. Do you believe that? Our primary response to Jesus's unraveling of fear and death is humble faith and confident assurance in his work and his 
promises. And here there's infinite freedom. We don't need to look at the problem anymore. Peter, when he's walking on the water, looks at the waves when he takes his eyes off of Jesus. There's freedom in looking to Jesus. There's healing in looking to Jesus. There's assurance and humility in looking to Jesus. And when I think about all of these things, for me, all of them are a massive drop-down arrow under the angel's words that night long ago. Do not fear. Don't do it. There's no life in it. Do not fear. I bring you good news of great joy. Worry does not win. Death is defeated. For unto you is born this day a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And he has undone and unraveled everything that fear and death can throw at you. And in him there is life abundant. Fellowship Greenville, this is our gospel today. That Jesus is our Savior King who has conquered And now, fear should be afraid because death has died. And I hope that's beautiful to you. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you so, so, so much for this good news. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you're the King of kings and Lord of lords. That you're the limitless God in a manger. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for perfect love that casts out all fear like First John says, thank you, Jesus. Holy Spirit, would you make us a people who are not defined by fear, but defined by a humble confidence in Jesus because of his work, because of his advent, his arrival, his incarnation, his death. Give us great joy, great humility, and great confidence because of that. Jesus, we love you. You're the best. Amen.